right, if you'll take your sermon insert out, on the front it says, at home in exile. We'll be working from that today as we look at Daniel 3, and I realize a challenge with Daniel is that, Daniel 3 especially, is that you know the story, the story of the statue and the fiery furnace, and uh, so let's see if we can't hear this again for the first time, and let's ask the Lord for some help in doing that. Lord, we come to you now and ask for help. You make, make yourself clear, make yourself known, glorify yourself for your good and our joy. That is what you delight to do. Truly, uh, joy is found in you, and we pray that uh, through your word this morning, in spite of our frailty, that you would help us to see you with fresh eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, there was a psychologist at the University of Virginia named Solomon Ash who conducted a series of experiments on 50 college students, uh, now known as the Solomon Ash Conformity Studies. Ash, uh, so recruited 50 people, all men, so that might be an issue coming up here. Uh, might may explain the outcome. But um, <clears throat> he put them in groups of eight people and... Uh, in those groups of eight people, seven were Confederates, meaning, uh, not from the South, but meaning that they were, they were in on the experiment. They were plants. They were actors. And each of the, so there's one person who's a subject and seven actors, but the one subject thought everybody was an actor, or I thought everybody was a subject. They didn't know. They were, they were the only subject. So they were put in these groups, and then they were giving a, given a series of vision tests that were very simple. They were something like this. There is this line here on a piece of paper, and the question is, given this line, which line over here, A, B, or C, is the most alike in length? So you could even see from this distance that this is very much like line B over here, right? And these weren't difficult things. They were about this easy, but they they mixed the orders, the lines up, and the links up over here, but it wasn't impossible to find out or to, you know, to tell how long those lines were in a series of experiments. They did 18 different tests, 18 configurations. On 12 of those pre-selected and known to the seven actors in each one, all the actors decided to, uh, on the, the 12 selected ones, give the wrong answer, and they all gave the wrong answer together and tried to convince that eighth person that the line that clearly wasn't the length of the other line was the length of the other line. So this is a study on social conformity. They didn't do everyone because they realized that would be too obvious. They only did two-thirds of them, 12 out of 18, with 50 different test subjects. On each of those 12, one-third of the time, on each of those 12, at least one-third of the time, they convinced that eighth person of the wrong answer. And over that course of experiments, eventually 75% of the test subjects said the wrong answer, even though they knew it was the wrong answer. And afterwards they said, well, I did kind of know it was the wrong answer, but I just didn't want to stick out. And now I don't want to talk about the replicability of that study. There might be some issues with it, but obviously it's getting at the reality that social pressure is a real thing. We, sometimes we just don't want to stick out, and that is a dynamic we have to live with in a time of what we're calling exile. If you remember, we're looking for the first seven weeks at, in 2024 at this biblical metaphor of exile, which the scripture gives us as one to understand our season in life right now. In that, since the Garden of Eden, we've been exiled from our true home, which is to be at home with God fully, 
And we are waiting for that. We, we, we sense it. There's an echo of that in our soul, but we sense that that's, that's down the road and it's coming up to meet us, right? And one day, Christ will return. All things will be restored and that exile will be no more. But right now, we are in exile. We're not home yet. Or we could say, our home is not to us yet. However, the Bible also teaches that in Christ, there's a real profound and true way we have already come home by virtue of our union with Christ. So we taste home now in Jesus. So as the followers of Jesus, we can say we are at home in exile. We are really at home, but we're really not home yet, or our home isn't here yet, even though part of this will be transformed and be part of that renewed future. In this time in exile, there is a profound pressure to conform to ways that are foreign to the ways of our true home. And that's what we're getting at today. And we're seeing here that God, in exile, God strengthens his people with courageous faithfulness in order to stand. If you're in Christ, God offers his strength to you for courageous faithfulness in standing. Now, this isn't a courage just to be different for the sake of being different. Like, I know, some of us are like, I just want to be different. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about courage because you like to be stubborn, although that appeals to some of us. I get that. Um, we're talking about this is courage for the purpose of being devoted to the Lord and faithful to the Lord in whatever situation we find ourselves, different circumstances, different cultures. It feels different. We're looking at one particular one today in Daniel 3. And as I said, these are familiar, but I want to do a little experiment if we can. In a moment, I'm going to have Dan come and read our, the first 15 verses of this passage. But do remember that these stories were first, like, mostly communicated orally and listened to, heard. And there's a literary reality going on in here of repetition. So I want you, as Dan reads, to listen for what is repeated and do a little, uh, we might call it auditory literary analysis if you want to feel sophisticated this morning. Or otherwise, I just want to say, listen and see what you hear, okay? So Dan, would you come? And friends, as we often do, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Dan will read the first 15 verses from Daniel 3. And I want you to listen for what you hear is repeated. Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship, the go and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Dan. We'll come back to what you heard there in a moment. First here, we're invited to recognize idolatry for what it really is here. What's going on? What's Nebuchadnezzar doing here? Well, he's probably consolidating power in the empire. This is a, this is a political move to consolidate power. If you remember, the, the way they, they conquered peoples and they brought sort of the best and brightest of those peoples to the capital to educate them in the Babylonian ways, which with the hope that, that their influence downstream on their people would be to like, just let's go along to get along. It was a way of controlling this massive empire uh, through the leaders of those, the conquered peoples. So they wanted to get all the leaders together worshiping the same thing publicly. Now the way of Babylon typically was to allow people to maintain their own gods as long as they put something else above it to unite them all. So like, you can keep your own gods. Oh yeah, you can worship Yahweh over here as long as you put this other thing above it and we get all the other people who also worship other gods to say, there's one thing that's of utmost importance. It is whatever's pictured here. Then we can all have unity. So what is this thing he's getting them to worship? It's a huge golden, probably gold-covered idol, and the, the details work out. It's about nine feet wide or 10 feet wide and 90 feet tall. So a very tall, thin statue of some sort, probably this. If you remember last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue, a head of gold, chest of silver, waist of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel says, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar likes this at first, and then it seems like he doesn't like it. Because I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm not just the head of gold, y'all. I'm the whole thing. My empire, there won't, it won't be left to another. Mine is enduring, and the way it will endure is all of you to worship. So probably, I think a lot of people think, this image is a likeness of Nebuchadnezzar himself. The whole thing, just extended out, right? Nine feet tall. It's like Barbie Nebuchadnezzar, like skinny and really long. Um, not in the notes, sorry. Probably shouldn't have said that, but... Um, it, a likeness, but not, 
you know, not exact likeness, but wanting all these people from different tribes to worship and say, this is of utmost importance. Clarifies what they think is most important and of secondary importance, what is the controlling reality in their life. The problem for our main characters is this. This is a violation of the first and second commandment given to the people of God in the Exodus. You will have no other gods before me, and you won't make an idol or bow down and worship an idol. These are clearly written commands that makes it impossible for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the Lord and obey Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, A lot of people ask, where's Daniel? Answer, we don't know. It's unlikely that he's just like bowing down with everybody else, probably because of his high position, he's exempt from this type of thing. This is, uh, there are three different types of challenges in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 1, we saw what we might call a wisdom challenge, where Daniel says, I am not going to eat from the king's table. That wasn't a direct contradiction to a biblical command, but Daniel knew doing this in some way would draw my heart away from the Lord and cause me to think I'm actually at home when I'm in exile. So that was a wisdom issue. And he stood courageously in a wisdom issue. In Daniel 6, we'll see this is sort of the the well-known passage of Daniel in the lion's den. Basically, a law is passed that he can't pray like he, that nobody can pray except Darius, whoever the king is. And Daniel prays three times a day in front of an open window. All Daniel would have to do is change where he prays. Like he'd have to move two feet to the left, that's it. Right, uh, But apparently, as we'll, we'll get there, this is an issue of conscience for Daniel. He realizes, if I do that, I'm violating my own conscience. I cannot do this, and so I refuse. So you have issues of wisdom, we have to stand courageous with, issues of conscience, and here we just have an issue of obedience. This is the revealed will of God, y'all. You cannot bow down, you cannot have another God, cannot worship an idol. But why is Nebuchadnezzar doing this? And I don't want to sort of try to rehab Nebuchadnezzar, but explain him a little bit. Not excuse him, but explain him. Nebuchadnezzar is a normal person. Every normal person, Scripture says, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. We have a deep longing for what we're created for. We are created to be in relationship with our creator, the one whose image we bear. There are benefits of being in relationship with our creator, like security and like uh, joy and approval and, and comfort. And when we don't have that, we will seek it somewhere else. In fact, when we do have that and forget it, we will seek those things somewhere else. So Nebuchadnezzar is a man who is made for security and to experience security in relationship with his creator. If he doesn't have a relationship with the creator, which he doesn't, he will pursue that security by other means. I'm not excusing it, just explaining what happens with Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else. If you're the king of Babylon, one of the ways you might pursue security is by these sort of kingdom consolidation practices of requiring everybody else to worship. You don't care about them. You don't care about them violating their own conscience or their own religious practices, but it makes you feel secure, therefore you do it. That's all he's doing. Nebuchadnezzar is a man made in the image of God, made for honor because he bears the image of God. You are made for honor because you bear the image of God. That honor is found in relationship with our creator. If we don't have that relationship or aren't aware of it, we will seek honor, we will seek approval other places. If you're the king of Babylon, maybe you'll use your power to seek approval by making everybody bow down to you. Again, I'm not excusing it, just explaining this is what he's doing. He just happens to be in control. It's understandable for those disconnected from a relationship with their creator. It's common when we forget it ourselves. 
We pursue different idols. We'll see in a second. Um, now, we might say, this is weird and separate from me. I, like, okay, granted, I'm not going to bow to an idol 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide made of gold. Check. Nobody's going to do that. Okay, that is true. But even in the Old Testament, it's a little more nuanced than that. If you'll turn over to the back of your insert, this is like a little, just one little sign of it. Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel writes, Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men, these leaders, these elders, have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Saying, uh-oh, idolatry is not just something out there and obvious it's something in the heart and in the heart of these leaders. Idolatry is an internal reality as well, which causes somebody like, I put a quote in there from Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. What is idolatry? Well, an idol can be defined most simply in this way. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is and idol. So Nebuchadnezzar is asking everyone to say, I just need you to say that this statue, which represents me and the empire, is the controlling influence in your life, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you are saying, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. That would be an idol. I took this, there's a, under that, there's a little matrix there that I have stolen and adapted from this wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. If you haven't read this book, I would certainly recommend it. It's a super short read. Like it's one of those books, it's short, you can read it, you feel like you've really done something, and there's really not that many words in it, but it's very helpful. Keller points out that in modern America, idolatry is a little more nuanced. It tends to be, so he's kind of gotten it down to, he got it down to four and I added one. Um, what's at the bottom of what we're mostly seeking most of the time? It could be any one of these five or some combination thereof, right? And this isn't perfect, but let's say this is 80% accurate. Comfort. Some of us are just really after comfort. And he's got a list of things. Restrictions we'll choose to get it and the nightmare scenario, right? If you are super afraid of stress and demands being put on you, possibly comfort is an idol pretty deep in the basement of your soul. Comfort, approval, and again, there are biographical reasons why you might have a, a, uh, an idol of approval, maybe from your family of origin. I'm not saying these are illegitimate reasons these show up, just they are idols. They're also something met in relationship with our creator. It could be control, maybe you just want to control things. Or power, those are similar but different. Could be security. At the end of the day, you just want to be stable and safe. And you can see how security and comfort would line up to each other. Now, we're all broken in different ways. But I would hesitate to guess that this cuts across all of our life in some way. If you, begin, if you get into some argument or you find yourself stuck in sin or you're down in the dumps and you begin asking, what's going on here? Let's go a layer down, a layer down, a layer down. Pretty soon you're going to get to one of these five, if not some combination of all of them. I know I am. For me, often at the bottom, it was like probably some little security mixed with approval, you know. And sometimes you can put one idol in, in, uh, 
in service of another. We're complicated, messed up people. All I'm showing you is idolatry is not just out there and back there in the Old Testament. These are real realities. First John 5 ends by John saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. There wasn't that kind of idolatry then. He's talking about idols of the heart. And a good paradigm we have for understanding this is Daniel 3. So that's what idolatry is. What's their experience of it? Now, this, at this point, I want to have you remind me of what you heard. What were things you heard repeated when Dan read those first 15 verses? Anyone give me one of those things? I, I didn't hear you. Instruments. There we go. Instruments. Anything else? Image. Set up this image. Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. Good. Anything else? Oh, they, they, oh, say it again. I'm sorry. Ah, yes. That's right. All the officers. Good. Anything else? Nebuchadnezzar. Good. Anything else? Yes. Fall down and worship. Good. I think you got them all. And importantly, like, you just heard that one time. We're not a culture that even tells stories anymore. We don't listen, basically, when people talk and read. Um, and still, even at that, you actually got all of those things. So, what's repeated, the king has set this up. He set it up, he set it up, he set it up, he set it up about five times, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is not an elected president that you get to disagree with. This is the king. Your head is on the chopping block. Anytime you offer an, opinion, offer an opinion contrary to his, he set it up. The ultimate authority has set this up. You must fall down in worship, and there's consequences if you don't, which is thrown alive into a fiery furnace, right? Which was this uh, basically uh, structure they used for, for melting metal and purifying metal. So it's very clear instructions. You're standing, you fall down in worship, right? And like this. That's what you do. The other thing you do is get thrown into a fiery furnace. So there's two options. Fall down and worship, fiery furnace. Very clear. Nobody can say, well, I, wasn't sure what, I wasn't sure what you're talking about. Very clear. All the officers in the land, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justice, magistrates, all the officials of the promises, says that, and then it's summarized by saying all peoples. That's peer pressure. Like, that's social pressure. Everybody you know who's a powerful is doing this. You won't know anybody else who's not doing this. And then all the instruments, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. It seems like just repeating, right? You got all the instruments, you got every kind of music, and then it says every kind of music, and then it says like five times. What's going on here? Why do they keep saying all the instruments? I think it's communicating like it's just this immersive environment. It's a very, if you can imagine this, imagine yourself being at Lucas Oil Stadium at a Colts game. Um, I love football. I cannot tell you, I love football. I do not really like going to the Colts games. Do you know why? It is so loud. I know, you're getting old, right? I get that, but like, it's like, it's so loud, everybody's screaming, and then the billboard will say, let's make some noise. I'm like, 
You know, you see the decibel meter going 103, 110. Like, I think this is bad for our hearing. I don't think this is good. And you walk out, and it seems so quiet. Like, I didn't know how quiet downtown Indianapolis was, right? Because it just, it's so much quieter than inside the stadium. And then if, like, the crowd's in unison on something, it's overwhelming. It's this immersive experience. Just imagine yourself in that, in the middle of the field, everybody looking at you. The, the music is playing. Everybody's singing with It's just natural to just bow down. And everybody does that, except three people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are, if you remember, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That's their Hebrew names. Oh, also they were betrayed. I forgot to say this. <laughs> they were betrayed. If you remember the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar was going to execute all wise men because nobody could interpret the dream. Daniel steps up, interprets the dream, and says, please don't execute all the wise men. He saves the life of all the wise men, of whom are a group of wise men called Chaldeans. If you saw in verse 8, who it is that turned them in. (laughs) Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Wait, we just saved your life in the last chapter. And finally, there's this threat of exposure and pain. You will be thrown into the furnace, uh, burned to death in front of everybody. So we might say, look, this, okay, true. But for these guys, it was easy to clarify. Either you bow or you don't bow. And for us, it is a little bit more subtle, and you're right. Comfort, approval, control, Power, security, your own, my own, twisted mashup of those is a little more nuanced. It is hard to figure it out. And we have to be anchored in the scripture to see that. Anchored in the scripture outside of ourselves, because our whole culture drifts with all of these things. These are practically values of our culture in some ways. For many years, when our kids were small, we'd go to Florida on vacation to the Gulf Coast because we had, uh, grandma and grandpa lived down there, which meant we had free housing, so we could afford to go to Florida. We just had to get there of those torturous all-night drives. Um, we get there, we didn't, kids can play in the water, we taught all our kids to swim early, it's fine, we didn't care if they played in the water, but we basically said, just stay here, we don't want you to drift down the beach because we want to keep an eye on you, and we don't want to chase you down the beach, so we don't mind if you play in the water, you're playing with the beach ball, the boogie boards, that's fine, just stay here, but you had to teach them another step, which is basically, see that big red umbrella, keep your eye on that umbrella, know where the umbrella is. Because if you just say, what, do I feel like I'm drifting? The answer is no, because you're drifting and you don't know it, and everybody else around you is drifting and you don't know it, and the beach ball and the boogie board and everybody around is drifting, 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 drifting. And if you just say, do I feel like I'm drifting? The answer is no, because everything is drifting. You've got to look at something outside of you that it's fixed, right? I think there's no way to know if we're drifting with comfort, approval, control, power, and security if we just ask, does it seem like we're drifting? That is the air that we breathe. It's the current of our culture. We have to be fixed on the word of God in community, something outside of us that doesn't move. And even then, sometimes it's a crapshoot. But we can't just drift along with our culture. Um, A few months ago, we were some extended uh, old friends from out of town. We were just catching up about our kids. And uh, they were telling a story of one of their kids who kind of made a mess a little bit of her life and had done some very selfish things and very destructive things and was still doing that. 
And the dad said, well, at least she's happy. And you know, really, she's been happy in all these decisions. And that's the, that's the most important thing, that she's happy. And I remember my wife, Carmen, was there thinking, don't look at Carmen, don't look at Carmen, don't look at Carmen, right? So it's like her happiness is destroying her and people around her. And you just, it's just a drift of the culture to say, well, the important thing is you're happy, right? No, that's a toxic reality. That's the destructive reality. You know, happiness is a nice byproduct, but a very bad North Star, right? And so um, I do the same thing, right? I, I will drift with you into all these things. We don't have something that's fixed in the scripture. This is certainly is exacerbated by the unpredictability of the powers that be in Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember, if you were here last week, Nebuchadnezzar, after his dreams interpreted, he has these like, it almost sounds like a conversion. It's not. Daniel 2.47, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So that's Nebuchadnezzar last chapter. God is God of gods and king of kings, king of lords. Yay. What we say about Nebuchadnezzar, the old theologians would say he had a religious diversion without a spiritual conversion. He's like, that's pretty cool. You can do that. There's not actually a change in his life. Happens the same, same thing at the end of this chapter. So he says this, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. But then in this chapter, in chapter three, verse 15, he says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is a God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have said, hold on a second. I think it's the God of Daniel 2.47. In your own words, King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who is God of gods and Lord of kings. Right? They don't say that. Here's what they do say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this courageous faithfulness demonstrates itself in actual trust of God. This has a couple of angles to it. In their culture, in our culture, means we embrace some things and reject others. It means we're respectful and respectfully defiant sometimes. And it means we're confident and humble. These three guys were getting along pretty well in that culture. Remember, they were, they were kidnapped, and they, they were trained in the Babylonian ways, and they disagreed with them, but they learned them. They were like top of the class. They did good work in a system they did not like. They, did, they embraced what they could, right? And in exile, there are things to embrace, there are things to embrace with modification. There are things we don't embrace, even though everybody else is, and there are things we reject. So we might say, like, we can embrace, as Christians in North America in 2024, North American food. We can embrace it fully, in moderation, right? We can embrace it. There's nothing, we just embrace it, right? Um, learning, scientific processes, engineering processes, we can embrace that. Some things need to be embraced with modification, like, for instance, music, entertainment, styles of dress. Like, yes, basically modern, but there are some things where, like, that's going to actually be a line. 
We're going to embrace with the modification. We're going to change it. We're going to say no. Not part of it, but not other parts of it. So embrace, embrace with modification. Do not embrace in a culture where everybody else is embracing it. So as followers of Jesus, we would say, we actually can't embrace the larger culture's vision of sexuality and marriage. Everybody else is embracing that. That's not a follower of Christ. Fine. They embrace that. We're not embracing that. We can't embrace that. There are some things we must reject. That comes along when that which we cannot embrace, we're forced to embrace. Like, in this case, bowing to an idol on the plain of Dura. They're like, I'm not, everybody else is bowing. I don't know, I'm not bowing. You have to bow. Okay, now we reject it. That's what's happening here. So it's, it's very, I think in every, it would have to be in every single culture, in whatever time, there's both embrace and rejection. And these guys aren't like a pain in the neck about the way they reject. They just don't do it. It's a, they only, they're not like signing a petition. They have, Nobody must do this. They're not making a big stink about it. They're just like, they're not doing it and they get turned in by the Chaldeans. So embrace and rejection, respect and defiance. They're respectful. Oh, king, that's a, that's a sign, that's a, that's a phrase of honor. Oh, oh, king, Nebuchadnezzar. First Timothy 2, we're, we're told this as God's people, to honor governing authorities even if they're terrible, like Nebuchadnezzar, like uh, Nero, like Domitian in the first century. First of all then, First Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, Nero is terrible, by the way. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to pray for him <laughs> and um, give thanks. First Peter two seventeen, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Same emperor, terrible. So this is a good thing to remind ourselves in coming into an election year. Seriously, it's okay not to like the president or the future president if he or she is different. I, I, that's fine. It is not okay to speak dishonorably about them, Christians. It's not. It doesn't matter that the whole culture drifts that way. It's practically the speech code of our culture. I get that. Uh, one way God's people are set apart is to say, you know, I disagree with that man or woman, period. <laughs> and maybe here's the ways I disagree, but not to speak in a dishonoring fashion. I have profound disagreements a lot of times with the leadership of our fair country. And sometimes I, it's hard to abide by these, let's just say. But like, I want us to see this. This is one way God's people can be different and set apart. Because we realize we're, this empire is not ultimate. Whether it's America, Rome, Babylon, it's not, empire is just not ultimate. So we are respectful, but also respectfully defiant. They, they say to Nero, to Nero, or Nero, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. That's defiance. Not like, we're not talking to you. We don't have to talk to you. That's not what they're saying. It's like, we, this doesn't even need to, I don't, we don't need to give a response. Or, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're mistaking this for a conversation. There's, this isn't a negotiation. God has spoken. We, we are not worshiping this idol. We don't, we don't have to answer you because it's not a conversation. It does remind us of when Jesus does not respond to Pilate. And Pilate's like, don't you know who I am? 
And Jesus says, yes, I know who you are, and you would have no authority if my father didn't give it to you. And you're misusing this authority, as Nebuchadnezzar was. So, they're not loud and pushy about their faithfulness. They're just faithful. They're not quiet. They're not squishy. They're not loud. They're just quietly faithful. Okay? So, humble, humble and resolutely faithful, and then with a confident humility. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So, and I think it helps that they're three together. So, they, it's a, you know, in verse 16, they all three answered and said to the king, we have no need to answer you in this manner. I think three together is helpful. Uh, I, this is a phrase I've the only other time I've said it in my life is was the first service. This week, I was looking at a horse trainer website, okay? And uh, so, so I've said it twice now in my life in the last hour. I was like, how much can a horse pull? Different horses, like, but, so it's interesting. If a horse can pull 6,000 pounds by itself, two horses together can pull 18,000 pounds. You would think it was just twice as much. It's not. Together, they actually can pull more. There's a synergy that happens of strength with two horses. I don't know with three. But uh, now in Solomon Ash's social control study, I'm guessing the reason he didn't put two test subjects in one place is if there was another person saying, that line's not that size, it would be almost impossible to get two people to do it. That's why we need to have good, faithful, courageous friends. That's why we need to watch ourselves around friends who are stupid and say the lines a different length. Because um, well, eventually, like, boy, we'll just kind of drift that way. Social pressure is really strong. Um, they have complete confidence in God's power to do this. Genuine trust is believing God has power to do what he wants to do. So I could say, like, I have power to lift this pen over my head, Right? It's not a big deal. He's like, that's not a big deal. You're, uh, this is not that heavy, right? You can lift that over your head. It is easier for God to rescue them from the burning fiery furnace than it is for me to lift this pen over my head. He's omnipotent. There's no limit to his power. So part of actual trust in God is trusting his power to be able to do something. And they say, he's able to do it. Yes. What God? You know what, God, he's able to take us out of this furnace and rescue us from your hand. And he will, one way or the other, rescue us from your hand. Genuine trust is not just in his power to do it. It is in his wisdom and timing as well. That's what genuine trust is. And these, I just think, these are the three best words in the book of Daniel. Verse 17, if so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, we will not serve you. We will not bow to this God or your, your idol or these gods. We will not. But if not. On this side of the cross, we'd say something like this. Our trust in the Lord is not dependent on him doing what we want when we want him to do it. Our trust in the Lord is not dependent on him bringing the comfort into our life, the comfort that we want as we describe it on our timeline. 
If that's the case, we're saying we are the wise ones. And God's power needs to submit to our wisdom of what we believe we need exactly at when we want it. Now, I realize that's, I'm, I may be talking to people who are in distress right now. I know some of us are in distress right now saying, you know what? If I were God, I wouldn't have this in my life like it is right now. I know. I know. You're not God. Neither am I. Part of trusting God is trusting not just his power, but his wisdom as well. And now we would say, you know, on this side of the cross, we say our trust is fully based in the reality that he fully has given himself to us. That's why. Not because of history bringing comfort into my life, not because that he's going to do it at this time or not do it at this time, because he's given himself fully to me. And that's the picture of both his power and his wisdom together. Then his resurrection tells us, guys, you are in a story that ends well. It ends well. So I asked my friend, my friend, he's my friend, but he's also my son, Joshua, in the first service to bring a book off our shelf. He grabbed this one, Mockingjay, which is, uh, what's the name? Hungry Games, third book. Um, I've not read the book. I think I saw the movie, fell asleep probably. But I, I don't know, but let's say I hadn't read the, read the book, which I haven't, and hadn't seen the movie. But this is the third book, Third book, fourth book, I don't know. This is the final book. It says it right there. So is there two books in front of this? I'm sorry, I just got to ask for the illustration. Okay, right. So there's two books in front of this. Let's say I read both those books and I read the beginning of this book. Okay, I know where the arc is going. And then I skip to the end and I read page 386 to 400, the very end of the book. Like, okay, I know how it ends. I know how it begins. I know the narrative arc. I know how this book begins. I know how this book ends. Okay, what's in the middle of those 400 pages? I don't know. I don't know how it gets to the ending. I know how it ends. I know it's a story that ends relatively well in a dystopian future, but it's, uh, it, it, I don't know how it gets there. How would I know how it ends? How would I know how the storyline develops? I would have to do what everybody has to do. I have to read it one page at a time and understand it. We see in the resurrection that we're in the middle of a story that ends really well. How do we know how the, the dynamics get from here to there? Like anybody else, we live it one day at a time taking what comes with the Lord, trusting his power and the wisdom of what he brings into our life. Fixed on something that's outside of us in the word of God, strengthened by community, people saying we together, and we move. So they're courageous. So what happens? Does that show of faith melt Nebuchadnezzar's heart? And he's like, you know what, guys? You're right, I'm sorry, I was being a jerk. No, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Likely, this is an Aramaic expression for as hot as it could get. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, tunics, hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, meaning this was hasty. It wasn't a ceremonial execution. Like, he's mad, tie him up. Heat the furnace, we're getting him in there. So he ties him up. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The end. Another martyr for the cause of Christ in the history of God's people. Not quite. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? 
And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking around in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There's been some ink spilled over who is the fourth person in the fire, the fiery furnace. Many theologians, I think, treat this as what's called a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, meaning before Jesus took on human form, he shows up in human form here. Some people say this is the angel of the Lord because Nebuchadnezzar said that, but Nebuchadnezzar knows nothing, so I'm not sure. Uh, probably given the picture of Jesus in Daniel 7 as the Son of Man, it's most likely this is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. Either way, this is God showing up as God's presence with his people. And he protects them. He's there. The idea is the fire does not burn them at all. It just undoes their, their bounds, their binds. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, which was dangerous. Last people did that, died. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Here we have a picture of how the Lord encourages his people and strengthens them, especially as we consider how this story has functioned in God's people down through the ages and even into this room. He is with us in distress. That's the picture. It's what he said all through the scripture. He is with us. He is with us. He is with us. In the Exodus, he tells Moses in Exodus 3, I am with you. I will go with you. When they're going into the promised land in Joshua 1, he says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, just before the ascension, Jesus sends out the disciples and says, behold, I am with you wherever you go to the very ends of the earth. And here's a picture right here of him being with his people in distress. And they experienced it when they were in distress. They experienced it in the flames, not before. And remember what Jesus does. There's a whole sermon series in itself. Just, okay. Pet, crucifixion, resurrection, teaches for 40 days, ascends to the throne, and then at Pentecost, sends the Spirit into his church. At that point, the Holy Spirit takes on a different title than he's ever had before. He begins to be called the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Son. So this Spirit who dwells in you actually is not just the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself. I am with you. That's the whole movement of the gospel in history to dwell with his people. And that's not all. This is a phrase I'm almost certain that I stole from Tim Keller because I don't talk this way and it's too, it's too lyrical. I put that in red there. Because Jesus went into the greatest fire for us, he will go into lesser fires with us. Now, whoever said that, it's really good, I think. Because Jesus went into the greatest fire for us, he'll go into lesser fires with us. We're going to the communion table in a second. This is a picture of Jesus going into fire for us. What is Jesus doing on the cross but receiving the judgment of God, the consuming judgment of God on sin, on our sin? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are set against sin and the destructive consequences of it in the earth. 
Jesus, though he is set on sin as the Father and Son, comes, steps into the world, takes on flesh, and says for his people, I will take this. I will take these consequences, which is far more devastating than any fire that humans can create. This is the actual judgment of God. Jesus is taking on himself and drinking down for us. He goes, friends, into a far worse fire than we can ever imagine for us. That means we can be absolutely confident that he'll go into other fires, lesser fires, even though they seem great to us. He will go into them with us. He is with us. That's what's celebrated in the table. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar's getting it. Nope. Okay, verse 29. Therefore I make a decree. Oh boy. Okay, any people nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king of Babylon promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Okay, the last step of courage is please never expect the world to get it. Nebuchadnezzar, if there is no God who is able to rescue in this way, he does not need your help of making death decrees if they don't believe in him, right? Uh, We would say this, the gospel is its own power source. It does not need the help of the power of empire or the, oppressive, or the impressive or the stellar or the powerful. The power of the gospel is itself. The reality that lives in you is its own power by the Holy Spirit of the living God because of the work of Jesus And we don't need the decree from the law of the land. We don't need a decree from the king of people because we have a decree from the king of heaven. And in that, he's decreed something like this. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've gone into a far greater fire for you. I will go into every other one with you. But I know you forget this often. So I'm gonna leave you with something to help you remember leave you something in remembrance of me. (laughs) And maybe you can celebrate it every week when you hear the gospel preached and you sing to me, you come to the communion table. And friends, if you're in Christ, I wanna invite you to this table. This is the picture that Jesus has both gone into the fire for us and will go everywhere else with us. If you're in Christ, this table is open to you. The way we serve